I'd love to welcome you to our CCL Lobby Training number one, a two-part series here. The first installment, getting ready for our fall 2023 Lobby Week. We'd love to make sure to especially welcome all of our liaisons, since this is our typical liaison time, but all of the other leaders and appointment setters and individuals that are involved in our lobby teams getting ready for the big push for this fall. You might be curious about what we are going to be lobbying on. Well, you're in luck tonight is that is what we're going to cover. Join CCL's Vice President of Government Affairs, Ben Pendergrass, and Senior Director of Government Affairs, Jen Tyler, to participate in strategizing for the upcoming fall lobby meetings. Get more information on the meeting asks and have time tonight to get your questions answered, at least the first part, for our government affairs team. This is the first of two recommended trainings for any CCL volunteer planning on being part of your lobby team. So without further ado, though, let me introduce our speakers and then pass it to them. We are joined tonight by Ben Pendergrass. Ben serves as CCL's Vice President of Government Affairs and is part of CCL's government relations team here in Washington, D.C., in this role, he works to advance our goals as CCL in Congress, and he comes to CCL with over 20 years of experience in Washington, both as congressional staff, as well as a government relations professional. With Ben is the wonderful Jennifer Tyler. Jen serves as Senior Director of Government Affairs and is part of the Government Affairs Relations team here in Washington, D.C. as well. Jen has spent over seven years in public service, serving as congressional staff. Most recently, she was Deputy Chief of Staff and Legislative Director for Congressman John Katko. Throughout her time as Congressional Staff, Jen has handled a broad portfolio, including transportation, natural resources, taxes, home security, agriculture, and healthcare. So with that, we are in great hands, as you can hear from our esteemed presenters tonight. And if we've done our job well, you'll walk away tonight with the following three learning goals. You'll have the chance for us to be able to explore how the current dynamics in Congress are gonna shape how we are approaching lobbying for our full lobby week. You're gonna have the chance to understand the strategy behind CCL's primary ask, the Big Wires Act, what it's about and why we've chosen it. And we'll also review the secondary ask that CCL is making in our lobby meetings, how to talk about them, what the policy details behind these bills are and how to feel confident heading into your lobby week meetings. And to do that, we're gonna start with a little brief introduction We'll discuss what's happening in Congress, a brief update there. We'll talk about some strategy around our primary ask, as well as how to frame the ask, depending on your audience or the office you're meeting with, and dive into some secondary ask discussion before saving time for Q&A. So with an introduction, just a quick little reminder on my end before passing it to Ben, that all CCL trainings are posted at cclusa.org slash YouTube by the next day, gearing up for the specific week of November 6th through the 10th. And Ben and Jen can tell you a little bit more about the strategy behind that timing, uh, but know that that is what we're referencing when we're talking about fall lobby week. It's November 6th through 10th in 2023. All appointments are happening virtually and they're being set by our congressional liaisons. Many of you on the line here, thank you all for the work that you're doing or somebody that they're designating. If you need help and you're on tonight and you're curious what the plan is for your local meeting, reach out to your group leader or your state or regional coordinator, and they can fill you in. We also have a wonderful meeting plan template that you can use to prioritize everyone's ideas for the meeting. And key items, as always, include an appreciation, a primary goal, our secondary asks and open-ended questions. And that is, as Mindy is saying here in the chat, something that we've been doing a great job in the liaison meetings leading up to tonight. So we're not gonna be diving as much into that, but it is a reminder is available. 
And for the fall lobby drive, we're encouraging lobby teams to be created by the local meeting lead. So we're still using the appointment setter to be able to track all the meetings happening, but they're being scheduled with your local lead. So don't expect national to be sending out a schedule for people to actually have kind of uh, assigned men. You're gonna be able to work with your local team for that. And if all else fails and you've reached out to your group leader and your statement regional coordinator and you're still curious, you can ask the liaison coordinator and that is liaison.coordinator at citizensclimatelobby.org and the amazing Jen and Mindy will make sure to get to you to support your needs. So with that though, I'm gonna pass it back to you, Ben, to give us a little introduction and launch us right into tonight's training. Great, thank you, Brett. And really thank, thank all of you guys for being here tonight on, on a Monday evening. Um, I know there's a lot going on in people's lives. Um, and I really want to just thank you for all the hard work you do. You know, November is kind of like the culmination of all the work we've been doing for the year. And you've been doing a lot of work. You've been lobbying throughout the year, both in June. You've been making calls. We've seen like a lot of headway. And some of the things that are getting traction still, like permitting reform, because of the things you've been doing. And some of the secondary ads, like the TPS access bill that you lobby on in June as well. And that's one reason it's a secondary ask tonight. And so that's why it's a really exciting time in November because we get to come and make our voices heard one more time very loudly before the end of the year. And we've seen that sometimes we work for, for years. Uh, and this is the time when things really come together. A good example is the Growing Climate Solutions Act. We worked on that bill for almost four years and it was after the November meeting and the final push that we got that over the finish line. So November is really a time where some of that work all comes together. And we'll tonight we'll try to outline our thinking around um, what we think will be most impactful for this lobby day. And we're just really glad to see you guys tonight. And with that, I'll hand it over to Jen to talk a little bit about Congress. What the heck is going on there? It's always a good thing to start with and maybe having some idea of like what's what the ground looks like as we prepare to head up there um, this November. Yeah, thanks, Ben. And thank you guys all for joining. I'm so excited to be here. I feel like this kicks off um, the beginning of our of our lobby season. And also, it feels like it leads into the holiday season for me. So this is my official holiday season kickoff, um, always with the November uh, and December conference and lobby day. So, so excited. Um, it's never a dull day in Congress, uh, as I'm sure many of you saw. The House a couple of weeks ago removed its speaker, Speaker McCarthy. So it is without an official speaker right now. There's a speaker pro temp, Congressman McHenry. And McHenry, even though he's speaker pro temp, doesn't really have a lot of authorities. That's a little bit up in the air. Basically, he's overseeing the process to select a new speaker. So we're entering week three without a speaker at the Republican conference. Last week coalesced around Congressman Jim Jordan, but he fell short on number of votes needed on the House floor. So they're starting kind of from square one again today. They're having a conference meeting, just Republicans as we speak, I think, um, with all the different candidates. I think we're up to maybe 10 um, who are putting their hat in the ring to be speaker. That meeting is basically a candidate forum tonight. Tomorrow around midday, the Republican conference will meet again and they will do a vote to determine who will be the speaker essentially nominee. It will not be a vote on the House floor tomorrow. It will just be a vote amongst Republicans to select who they would like to move forward to a floor vote. So it's unclear if they're gonna have 
um, some sort of agreement tonight or tomorrow, how quickly when that vote will be, a lot is still up in the air. Um, and there's still a potential that, you know, they don't have agreement and they have to pursue another plan. Um, so a lot up in the air, but that being said, there's a lot of things they need to get done. So there's a lot of push for them to figure this out because they have to get a long-term spending bill passed. As you all might remember, just about a month ago, uh, the Congress passed a funding bill to keep the government open on September 30th. And that bill was a short-term bill that gets us to November 17th. So if Congress doesn't pass another spending bill by November 17th, the government would shut down. So there's a lot of momentum and a lot of push there to get this figured out both in the Senate and the House. And on top of that, we've seen a lot of other things in the news and the president has come forward with requests on funding for Ukraine, Israel, as well as some Southern border funding. So there's other pr funding priorities that are likely to be included in this funding bill. Um, so we do expect it to be a, a larger bill um, than some others. There's also the NDAA that must be passed. That's the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the large military Department of Defense funding bill that has to pass every year. And that's considered a must pass bill on both the Republican side and the Democratic side in both the House and Senate. And with all of those packages coming together, a funding package, NDAA, We've also got to see hopefully some action on the farm bill. We really think permitting reform has a shot here. And Ben will get into the specifics of what exactly our primary ask is and, and how we came to that. But part of the reason it's so focused on permitting reform is because of this tremendous opportunity there is at the end of this year and the beginning of next year in these larger packages. Permitting reform is a much broader complex policy. So it's unlikely that it will pass on its own, in its own bill. Instead, it's likely to be a compromise package that's rolled into a larger legislative package. So that's part of why we're still really drilling down and focusing on permitting reform, because we've got a lot of these year-end funding bills and larger legislative vehicles that are gonna move that present the best opportunity for permitting reform. So with that, then go into the specifics around our, our primary ask and why permitting reform. Thanks, Jen. And I think Jen makes a really good point, you know, that we have an opportunity here. But one thing I really also like to remind people is we're not just doing this because it's something that Congress is interested in working in, working on. We we identified permanent reform as being extremely important to our climate goals. Almost started having these conversations two years ago in some ways. And before that, we were having some of these conversations even years beforehand. And then we were one of the first groups to really identify both to protect um, the gains that we were going to potentially achieve in the IRA and just for big emissions reductions in the near future and in further, looking further down the line, something like a carbon price, we needed to be able to build clean energy, energy infrastructure faster. So we always knew this was important and plan on driving this as part of the conversation. And we really have, you know, we started talking about this um, last November, um, we lobbied on it in June, and in June we lobbied on it more broadly. And we really felt that Congress needed to hear from the grassroots that permitting reform was needed and had grassroots support. But one thing we were trying in June is we, were, we weren't being overly prescriptive. We knew Congress wasn't there yet. We knew they needed to just hear, they need to have a focus on it, and didn't necessarily need to hear all the details from us. But now we think 
there does need to be more focus. We think there needs to be more focus on transmission. You know, as part of the debt ceiling deal, there were some very good permitting reform provisions in there, but there was nothing on transmission. And while we still want to talk about permitting reform more generally, we really think now's the time to get a little bit more specific around transmission because it just hasn't been part of the big packages we've seen considered put forth by either the Republicans. We haven't seen a package from Democrats. We need something on transmission. And we really think big wires could be that piece. It's not every piece on transmission, but it could be a big part. And we want to send a message that this is a bill that is worthwhile to include in any comprehensive clean energy permit reform package. And you might be asking, like, why big wires? There's other bills out there. You know, there's a lot of different ideas on how to build out more transmission. There's ideas around giving FERC greater author direct authority in bills like the SIDE Act. There's stuff like that included in the Mansion bill earlier. But there's also this idea of minimum interregional um, transmission re or transfer requirements. You know, this some of the other bills have had strong opposition or concerns from Republicans around states' rights issues. This approach gets around some of these concerns because it does not, as some people would say, bigfoot the states. So that's one reason to take a good look at big wires. The other reason is it really does have bipartisan roots. It's been an idea that has not been put forth by one side or the other, even though the current sponsors of the Big Wires Act are just Senator Hinkeloper and Congressman Peters. There really is this idea that has brought a pill and actually has much deeper support potentially than is just reflected in the number of co-sponsors it currently has. With that, I'll let Jen give a brief overview. Since Dana did a deep dive on this last week, Jen will just give a quick uh, summary for those of you who've not quite gotten a chance to check out Dana's webinar yet. Jen? Thanks, Ben. And yeah, I do encourage you all to really check out Dana's talk last Thursday, if you haven't already. Um, he did a great job going into a lot of detail and answering a lot of questions and some nuances about um, tra the transmission bills that are out there. But Big Wires Act, what does it do? Well, the large overview is that it's allowing regions to have the capacity to share power. So there's different regions broken up in our country that all have their own kind of autonomy, their own grids that they control. This bill would make sure that they have the capacity to share that power. It would require them to have that capacity, the ability to share. Specifically, it requires regions to be able to transfer 30% of their peak demand between each other. Now, there's some changes for regions that have lower transfer capabilities. It might take them longer to get to that point. Um, and the bill also does not apply to the Texas interconnect. So there's some specific changes. Uh, but overall, the bill is tech neutral with respect to achieving these goals. So as Ben mentioned, it doesn't dictate how regions have to get to this point of being able to transfer 30% of their peak demand. Now, that means regions can do this in any number of ways. It doesn't say how they have to pay for it, what technology they have to use, anything like that. But specific tools we expect them to use, different things we expect to happen, we definitely are expecting to see new transmission lines and upgrades to existing facilities. We're also expecting grid enhancing technologies such as advanced power flow controls that allows them to move the power going in one direction back to the other direction or dynamic line ratings that allow them to change 
um, how the lines are operating based on external weather events. We're also expecting more energy efficiency to reduce peak demand, as well as new generation or storage that's going to free up capability to move power. Now, the regions themselves, as we said, they're responsible for deciding who builds and who pays for any new transmission lines. So it's just stipulating they have to be able to share this 30%, but not how they get there. Benefits of this bill. There's a number of them. I think one of the biggest ones that really is appealing to both sides of the aisle, to the House, the Senate, all over the country, is improved reliability. We're seeing these extreme weather events, especially winter storms, but some summer heat waves. We saw blackouts this summer in Wisconsin, uh, hurricanes, different weather events that are really taking a toll on the electrical grid, both the amount of power that's being used as well as just the impacts on the grid itself. Um, this bill is gonna increase the electrical grid resilience against those extreme weather events. So if one region is being hit with a storm, another region can help supply them with power and vice versa. So that hopefully when regions really need it, particularly under these severe weather events, they're able to get the power they need and to keep the lights on. Second, it's gonna reduce costs. If we allow regions where power prices are cheap to sell to regions where it's more expensive, that's gonna increase the amount of power available in these expensive areas and thus reduce costs. And we're also gonna allow all regions to connect new and low cost resources to the grid that's ultimately gonna bring down the cost of power, including connecting things like solar and wind and a lot of renewable energy that currently is having a tough time connecting to our old aging grid. Leading into that point, it's tech neutral. So it doesn't specify what is gonna connect, what specific types of energy are able to connect. It opens the door to clean energy. It opens the door to any type um, so that we can really get some of these new projects online. And lastly, it's going to facilitate the build out of transmission. Even though the bill doesn't explicitly state how many miles of transmission must be built or how much clean energy must be connected to the grid, the build out necessary to hit this 30% transfer between regions is going to be very significant. And that's going to get us much closer to where we need to be to connect all of this clean renewable energy to the grid and to get the emissions reductions that are projected from things like the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. So even though this bill has a little bit different approach, not specifically addressing uh, clean energy or climate explicitly, um, or, or some of the other transmission policies, the result of this bill, what's gonna end up happening with the amount of lines built, the amount of entry points that are gonna be created for new clean energy projects, the results are gonna be exactly what we've been advocating for and the same thing you would see from some of the other bills, um, but done in a way that's avoiding some of that controversy like Ben stated by leaving it up to the regions and giving them much more flexibility. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ben to talk to us about how can we frame this kind of message depending if we're meeting with a Republican or a Democratic member of Congress. I think that was a really great overview, Jen. Like, I mean, really well said around around this issue. But as we know, like with every bill, you know, it's it, framing can be important just to get your message across and like starting off on the right foot. We know that with Republicans, they're really concerned about reliability and resilience. That's something that really, really resonates with them. And it can also be something you talk about as regards to national security. We know if you're going to like lead off on this bill, that's, that's a good place to start. 
As Jin talked about, this bill has a really good opportunity also to reduce costs for consumers. Consumer costs are always a really big issue for a lot of these offices. And thirdly, it's, it's tech neutral. It's not prescriptive. You have these goals to achieve, uh, but we're not telling you exactly how to achieve them or the bill isn't telling uh, regions exactly how to achieve it. And that's also important. It gives different regions with different needs flexibility, which is also something that's very appealing and uh, really falls in line with some of the core values of these Republican lawmakers. And so we've done this with a lot of our bills. You know, it's not that the bill changes or we're trying to like uh, misrepresent it. It's just you start with the things that are most appealing for certain offices. On the Democratic side, they still they need to learn about this bill as well and have a good reason to consider it. On, on that side of the aisle, you know, it's really worth talking about. Uh, we believe the, the requirements in big wires will help speed decarbonization. Um, we think, as Jin said, that will help bring more clean energy on the grid. We're almost sure of that. But it's also important to get Democrats to talk about reliability and resilience. And and nobody minds the message that it will reduce cost to consumers. One thing about this bill, I think, is to me really strikingly important that Jen touched upon is as we move to decarbonize our entire economy, our electricity grid is going to become more and more important. Everything that impacts electricity and can take it off a line um, is going to be magnified. And so even if all this bill did was make the electricity grid more resilient in the face of natural disasters or allow us to like move power between regions to make sure the lights don't go off in another region next door, it would be extremely important to climate goals because all of these things are going to be interconnected in the future as we steadily make uh, headway on our climate goals. Next, you might be asking, all right, why big wires? Why not the Energy Innovation Act, which was just introduced? Well, we're playing both the long and the short game here. When Energy Innovation Act was introduced, it's really important. It needed to be reintroduced so a carbon price was continued to be part of the conversation in Congress. And you guys made a lot of calls to remind them of grassroots support for a carbon price. But the focus there is really on the grassroots ground game. We've got to continue to build more support in the districts uh, among your fellow constituents. That's really where our focus is on the Energy Innovation Act. And as Jen said, right now we have a window of opportunity for permanent reform and big wires. And so we're going to seize that opportunity. Next, I'd like to just start on our secondary ask and get into some of our thinking there and what they are. Well, first, the secondary asks are the Technical Ser Service Provider Access Act or TSP Act and the RISE Act, which is a secondary ask you might remember from previous lobby days. Now I'll turn it over to Jen to, to talk a little bit about how and why we chose these secondary asks. Yeah, thanks. And I'm very excited for these two secondary asks because they're things we've already worked on and we've gotten really close to the finish line. Uh, but first, backing up, how do we choose secondary asks? Well, I want to remind you guys that even though these seem like maybe not, not super consequential, we're very focused on big wires on our primary ask, this is really a tremendous area where we have a lot of success. And it's not only success in moving important climate policy, like recently with passing the Growing Climate Solutions Act last Congress, getting that signed into law, 
we're not only passing important climate bills, but we're really setting the foundation. We're strengthening our relationships and we're building that groundwork so that we're able to get our primary asks, our larger focuses through. So I really can't overstate how significant these secondary asks are. They might take up you know, 10, 15 minutes of your meeting, but the impact of that time is really, really significant. So how do we decide them? First, we wanna make sure that it's complementary to our primary policy area, not conflicting. We also wanna make sure that it's bipartisan and achievable in the near term, and it's gonna build bridges. It's gonna help us connect the dots, connect people, um, and move our larger policies forward. Other considerations this time, this fall lobby drive, we really wanna have a greater focus. In June, as many of you remember, we had many more secondary asks. And we really took note of that. We watched what was happening afterwards, how many co-sponsors, what were the notes and feedback we were getting. And we learned and were adapting from that process. We had so many secondary asks that our impact was a little more diluted. So we're pivoting this time, we're narrowing it down to just two. That way we have much stronger focus and a larger impact on those two bills. And why those specific bills? We'll talk a little bit about what those bills do, but in terms of why we chose TSP Access Act and the RISE Act, for the TSP Access Act, it's a prime candidate to be included in the Farm Bill. TSP Access Act is not gonna move on its own. It's a bill to be included in the Farm Bill. And the Farm Bill is the second biggest climate opportunity other than permitting reform, this Congress. The Farm Bill negotiations are ongoing. We expect to have some potential extension as well as a larger reauthorization passing soon. So that's why the TSP Access Act is back on our agenda to try to get it across the finish line and into the Farm Bill. In the RISE Act, offshore wind projects we see coming under increased threat. And even in recent weeks, we saw this in New York with an offshore wind project that the New York state government denied in terms of providing some sort of financial support for it. And we're seeing that happen in several states. In order to hit our 2030 clean energy targets, we need to have offshore wind. We also need offshore wind to address you know, some of the coastal impacts. The RISE Act does a great job of doing that. Um, but because of that impact to offshore wind project and the resistance we're seeing, the RISE Act is gonna be even more important and is really growing in terms of support to try to incentivize more states to allow those offshore wind projects to move forward. So RISE Act has even more momentum now than it did before. And that's part of why it's back on our agenda. And lastly, persistence. We want to get things, these things across the finish line. Similar to the Growing Climate Solutions Act, we had to lobby on that several times to get it across multiple hurdles, and eventually we got it signed into law. We feel confident if we keep working on these two come November, we're hopefully going to get them across the finish line. So diving into specifics, the TSP Access Act. We lobbied on this in June, as I, as I mentioned, and we got 27 new co-sponsors in both the House and the Senate. So really good progress. But as I said, we're getting closer to a potential farm bill reauthorization. So we really want to push it across the finish line. Now, the problem that the bill addresses is that there's a shortage of technical service providers. Technical service providers help producers access USDA conservation programs, and they do that through one-on-one -on -one assistance. So when we think about the $20 billion in conservation funding that was provided through the Inflation Reduction Act, that money is going to be accessed by farmers, foresters, ranchers through TSPs. So we need those technical service providers to give them access to these important conservation and climate programs. 
The bill does this in a few different ways. One, it allows non-federal certifying entities to certify TSPs instead of just federal, so giving more opportunities for them to be certified. It also streamlines that certification. So if a TSP technical service provider has a specialty certification already, it prevents them from doing duplicative training, so just cutting through some of the red tape. And lastly, there's parity and compensation for technical service providers, making sure that they're paid at fair market rate for their services so that more folks are willing to get involved. So with that, I want to turn it over to one of our volunteers. We've been hearing so much from volunteers around the country about all the inspiring work that you're continuing to do across all of our policy agenda areas. And one story I really want to feature tonight comes from Linda Marin, who's the group leader of CCL's California Santa Cruz chapter. And she was recently able to interact with a forestry expert, the vice president for the Natural Resources Foundation Board at a webinar. And she asked what their opinion was and how important they felt the TSP Access Act was. So I'll let Linda take it from here. My next question uh, was, well, how useful is uh, legislation like the Technical Service Providers Act in um, you know, helping these communities that you're talking about? And then, he said, oh, Linda, that's the best question you could have asked. Um, and he went on to say, that's what he's been working on his whole life, really. Um, he says that the TSP is a, just a critical piece of delivering resources to small underserved farmers and landowners, and that um, there's a forestry deficit in, in our nation um, and a natural resources deficit. And what's needed is more people to be boots on the ground, to go into these communities and to uh, build trust with these small uh, farmers and landowners and to uh, make sure that they know what the programs are that are available to them and to really provide um, just you know hands-on help getting them involved in these programs. Um, I felt like, oh, I, I just have much more motivation than ever, you know, to push for this uh, because it just felt like it was a very um, grounded, literally, benefit, you know, that was going to be especially for small underserved um, sort of struggling farmers and that that's much more important and interesting to me. So um I felt very aligned, you know, with what his what his advocacy was, and um, it's these communities that we should be sure that we are um, helping and addressing and um, valuing. I feel proud of us, Citizens Climate Lobby, for um, for promoting the technical um, service providers uh, bill. I'm Linda Marin, and I lead the Santa Cruz chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby. Thanks so much, Linda, for sharing your story and reminding all of us about the real-life impact that the TSB Access Act and all the policies that CCL advocates for can make to farmers, foresters, everyday landowners, helping them become a part of the climate solution. You definitely gave me more motivation with that story, and I hope many of you on this on this call took away the same thing. And with that, I'll turn it over to Ben to talk a bit more about the RISE Act. Thanks, Jen. That was great. That was a great overview of like why we choose these secondary asks and try to make our voice the most impactful as it possibly can be. And Jen did a really good job of kind of laying out the context for why we're going back in on RISE one more time. 
Um, so I'll give just a brief overview of like what RISE does and the problem it seeks to, to really address. Under the current law, you know, all revenue earned from offshore wind leases and and generation that are beyond state waters just goes to the, the federal government, to the general treasury. However, like for, for offshore oil, some of this revenue goes back to the states. And this simply provides some a incentive for states to prioritize offshore oil and gas um, instead of offshore wind. The bill also does something else. It provides funding for coastal resilience and conservation. So one thing that the RISE Act would do, which is very important, is it would direct 37.5% of offshore wind revenue in federal waters to neighboring states. This would de develop a dedicated funding stream for coastal infrastructure and resilience to safeguard vulnerable communities and businesses most threatened by sea level rise and coastal erosion. These state funds can be used for a couple things. They can be used for coastal restoration, hurricane protection, or infrastructure. It can be used to mitigate damage to fish, wildlife, or other natural resources, including through fisheries science and research. It can be used to implement a marine coastal or conservation management plan. And those are the big things of why we like the RISE Act, because it addresses two big issues. It creates an incentive for states to want to have offshore wind because they will get these revenue sources. And it also helps coastal communities in the face of all the climate impacts we know are that we're seeing now and are coming in the future. It does a couple other things. It does amend GOMESA, which is the part of law that has revenue sharing for offshore oil by elim eliminating the state revenue cap, which currently stands at $375 million. That's a compromise. But as part of that, it also lifts the Land and Water Conservation Fund's stateside funding cap of 125 million. So what this means is that some of that oil and gas money that goes to great things like protecting more public land in inland states and conserving wildlife, more revenue will float now flow to those those that fund as well. And so that's the brief overview of Rise. I know we've covered it a couple of Congresses, so I know I'm sure most of you. Are pretty familiar with the bill and hopefully with this one last push we can get it over the finish line it's really more important than ever with that i see we're coming up towards the latter half of the hour and we want to preserve some time for questions even though we will preserve all next thursday or this coming thursday just so you guys can digest all this hopefully i have a chance to watch dana's um webinar specifically on big wires. Um, you can come to us with questions, digest all this information, and we'll be ready then, but we'll have some time for thoughts uh, for um, for questions in just a few moments. But I'm really excited for this, this lobby day. I know you guys have been working hard all year long, and let's do one last push and see if we can get some wins for the climate. And we hope that you found tonight's training empowering and useful and really just getting you set up with your team to have that confidence and success heading into your lobby meetings. And at this point, if you have any other questions, make sure to go and uh, attend our Thursday training or our forums. And you can see that simply cclusa.org forward slash forums. We look forward to seeing you there. I'm going to unmute all lines so that we can hear each other as we sign off tonight. And again, we just want to thank you for spending a whole hour with us this evening and making a difference across the country right now. These lobby meetings are going to be high impact, help shift the conversation forward, 
and they wouldn't happen, frankly, without your involvement. So thank you all for making a difference. Stay safe, and we'll see you Thursday, everyone. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.